Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. Last year, I had a great conversation with Smokey Robinson, who is a great singer and one of the greatest songwriters to ever live. We talked about some of his most famous songs from Motown and a whole lot more. And today, we're going to have an encore presentation of that interview, and we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Couldn't be more excited to have with me one of the greatest songwriters who ever lived, Smokey Robinson. He's got a new Audible release out called Smokey Robinson, Grateful and Blessed, and that gives us a reason to look back at his entire career and to dig into the writing of some of his greatest songs. Smokey, thanks so much for being here. Well, Brian, thank you for that introduction, man. I don't know what to say after. After all that, yeah. We'll call it a wrap. Um, <laughs> I'm, ta- I'm taking you with me everywhere I go. <laughs> so according to some accounts, it was actually partly your idea to start Motown Records that you said to Barry Gordy, your good friend, you said, why should you let the man take the royalties? Why not sort of be the man yourself? Uh, is that how you remember it? Barry uh, was a record producer and a songwriter in Detroit when I met him. And um, nobody had been paying him. He'd been writing a lot of songs for Jackie Wilson and Eddie James and people like that, you know, and nobody really was paying him. And then when he started to manage the Miracles and Me, he put us with a record company. There was no Motown at the time. He put us with a record company called End out of New York. And they had a lot of popular artists at that time. So we had a mild hit record with them and we had four sides with them. And um, didn't you get a check for about three dollars, three dollars and 19 cents to be exact, (laughs) you know, and that was for the writing and the producing and the artist royalties and all the royalties that went along with those four sides. And like I said, the first record got a job was was a hit because it was in the top five in in the R&B charts at that time. And uh, so we knew that. So it was just uh, it was like insulting. I guess he had had enough. So he borrowed eight hundred dollars from his family and started his own record company. It was his idea. It was not my idea. My idea for him was to go national because mm. we were just local. And we were getting ready to put out another record on the Miracles of Me called Way Over There. And he was trying to decide because it was breaking big in the Detroit area. And he was trying to decide what record company he was going to put us with nationally for national distribution. And I said to him, why don't you just do it yourself, man? Because nobody's paying us anyway when we do that. So we might as well take a chance on not paying ourselves. So, <laughs> so uh, that, that's what that was. It wasn't for his, the idea for him to start the record company. That was his idea. But for the Go National, I suggested that to him. Now, Barry Gordy, great songwriter in his own right. And it, it seems like at the very beginning, he functioned as, at the very beginning, he functioned as, as a little bit of, of a mentor and a teacher to you uh, in the first songs you were writing at that time, what, what did you learn from him that took you to the next level with your songwriter? You know, Brian, uh, the first day I ever met Barry Cody, man, I, uh, the Miracles, we weren't called the Miracles at that time, we were called the Matadors. And we went for an audition for Jackie Wilson's managers. 
which was huge to me because Jackie Wilson was my number one singing idol as a kid growing up. And he was from Detroit and I would have walked 10 miles to see Jackie Wilson at that time, you know. So to find out we got an audition with Jackie Wilson's managers was huge for me. And so we go there and uh, we had a girl with us, Claudette, who was my first wife. She was my wife at the time because we were still teenagers. But her brother had been singing with us until we graduated from high school. Then he had his mother to sign for him to go to the army. So when the audition came up, we needed that other voice. So we took her with us. So we went there and we sang five songs that I had written and thinking that that was going to get us over with these people because they were going to love the fact that we had our own material. Barry happened to be at that audition, just sitting there waiting to turn some songs into Jackie Wilson. When we finished singing the songs, uh, his managers told us that they did, you know, thought we would never, ever make it because we were too much like the Platters, who were the number one group in the world at that time, because they had a guy singing high and a girl in the group. And we were too much like them, so we would never make it. After the audition was over and we had failed the audition with them, Barry came out to follow us out of the, out of the audition hall and asked where the songs came from. I explained to him I'd written them, blah, blah. So he took an interest in me because my songs in those days, Brian, I could always rhyme stuff from the time I was five and six years old. I, I could rhyme and I was writing poems and stuff at that time. And I could always rhyme stuff, but my songs did not have continuity. Mm. So Barry started to teach me how to make my songs have continuity and to make everything in the song tie in together. He told me the middle of the beginning and the middle and the ending have got to tie in together and got to mean something conglomerately, you know, and he taught me, he started to teach me how to write songs and put them in, in continuity then. And did he reject a bunch of songs early on? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, man, I can do some songs right now. And if I go to Barry, he'll say, man, I like this. He might reject those now because that's who we are together, you know. So, so yeah, he did. That's who he is. You know, he did that to everybody. Holland Doja Holland, uh, Norman Whitfield, Mickey Stevenson, all the writers, well, you know, he, he would reject, you know, just tell him, hey, man, this is not cool. That's why we were so powerful, man, because we had a music man at the helm. We had somebody whose first love was music and producing records and writing songs and stuff. He was our leader. So that's why we were so strong, because we would go to him. He critiqued everything. We critiqued each other. We had Monday morning meetings where nobody except the creative people could come in there. And they started at nine o'clock. If you got there at 901, you were locked out. <laughs> and we had the creative meetings and we critiqued each other's music. Everything that you recorded for that week on whoever you had recorded it on, we did that to each other. So that's that's why I think we were so powerful because we had a music man at the helm. Now, Motown's first million seller was Shop Around. You've said you've written it in, in 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever. It was very fast. How did yeah. that, <laughs> how did that happen? Uh, well, songs, that, Brian, songs are different, man. Uh, some songs are like that. Some songs flow. You know, in contrast to that, man, it took me five years to write Cruising, you right. know. So Shop Around was just one of those songs that flowed out. And I wasn't really writing Shop Around for myself because we had an artist named Barrett Strong who had a huge record, Money, That's What I Want. Right. And Barry had written that song for him. And uh, so uh, he told me, he said, I want you to do an album on Barrett. So I said, OK, fine. So I started doing an album. So I thought about Money, That's What I Want. What you do with Money? You shop. So I started writing <laughs> and, 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 I, and I went to Barry when I, I was very excited about it, man, because it flowed out, like I said, in 20 or 30 minutes, it was done. And I went to him and uh, I, we went down to the music hall 
And uh, we started to, I said, sat at the piano, started to play it for him. And he got excited about it because he was excited and he wanted to change some of the chords and blah, blah, blah. So we did that. And uh, he said, I want you to sing this song, man. So I said, no, man, I wrote this song for Barrett. No, man, I want you to sing this song. No, I wrote for, we went through that for 20 minutes. He finally said, hey, man, <laughs> go in the studio and record this song, The Miracles in You. I said, okay, fine. So I did it. Barrett Strong was a bluesy singer. So I wrote Shop Around Bluesy. And that's mm. how I recorded on The Miracles in Me. Okay, the record had been out for two weeks to show you how we worked in Motown, Brian. The record had been out for about two weeks. It was doing fair, you know. And uh, so three o'clock in the morning, one morning, my phone rang. I pick up the phone. I said, hello. Hello. I said, yeah, what's up? He said, this is Barry, man. I said, no, man, I recognize your voice. What do you want? He said, what are you up to? I said, what am I up to? I'm sleeping. He said, well, man, he said, shop around won't let me sleep because you gave it the wrong treatment. He said, I'm going to change the beat. I'm going to change the sound. I'm going to change the feeling of it. And it's going to number one. I said, okay, man, great. I'll see you tomorrow. He said, no, I mean, right now. You get the group and come to the studio right now. It's three o'clock in the morning. So I did. And we went there. And everybody showed up except for the piano player. So Barry's a pretty accomplished pianist himself. So he played the piano on the record. And we recorded Shop Around at three o'clock in the morning, changed everything about it. And sure enough, it was our first million seller. Mm. I mean, when you say it flowed out of you, that does that mean from the first line when I became a man, my mother, that, that and it just went from start to the, yeah, the, the entire song, man. Mm. Yeah. Do you ever wonder where does that come from? How does that happen? Uh, you know, Brian, I, I don't know what your spiritual thing is, man, but I'm a very strong believer in God, and I think God gives everybody gifts, and I think that it's just one of the gifts that He gave me because it, it like I said, I could always rhyme stuff from the time I was four and five years old. So I think that was just a gift. And I'm very, I'm very uh, thankful for it and very humbled by it because I, I'm not one of those songwriters who needs to go to the mountains for two weeks or a month and isolate myself so that I can write. It might happen while you're interviewing me, man. You might say something that might trigger an idea for me, you know. So th that's just how it is for me. How about the way you do the things you do? What do you remember about that one coming together? Uh, the way you do things you do. The way you do the things you do... Um, when the Temptations first came to Motown, I had known uh, Otis, who was the founder of the group, and uh, Melvin, who was the bass singer. Melvin's passed on now. But I had known them from high school because we used to have group battles, and our group would be against their group and against all the groups in Detroit. And, all that. and you were going to, you had a good chance of winning if the Four Tops didn't show up. If they showed up, you were best you were going for, for second place, you know. So, and they were <laughs> called the Four Ames at that time. So I knew Otis and Melvin from, from high school. And, and uh, when they came to audition, they passed the audition. So Barry said, I want you to work with them, get some, get some hits on them. So I said, OK, fine. So I started to write some songs for them using Paul Williams, uh, who was their original lead singer, as the lead. And so we did several records on them, people, you know. And, 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 and I did three or four records, and nothing happened. And then one day, uh, on the way back home from a tour that the Miracles and I had been on, uh, the only three of us drove. So it was my turn to drive the car. And we're coming back into Detroit. And um, so a, a melody came to me, man. And I started to think about the Temptations and I thought about how close-knit their harmonies are. The Temptations at that time, man, I could have brought them into a little room and had them to just say, ooh, and they would have shook the room. The, this, the, the blend of their harmonies from Melvin being way down on the bottom, Eddie being way up on the top and everybody in between. So I thought about writing a song for them where they harmonized on it. And so I started to write the way you do the things you do, thinking of Eddie Kendrick singing the lead. Mm. I got the inspiration for that 
from Curtis Mayfield because Curtis Mayfield had the same kind of voice as Eddie Kendrick and Curtis Mayfield, Curtis Mayfield was my brother. And so I thought about he had this, all these hits going with the impressions and all that. So I said, you know, I'm gonna use Eddie Kendrick to say lead on this. And so I did. And it was the first hit that they had. In turn, all of the producers and writers at Motown jumped on the Temptations bandwagon because <laughs> at Motown we had a policy. It didn't matter if you had a number one record on an artist. The next record was not guaranteed for you. If you came with it, then you would get it. But all the root producers and writers had access to the artist if they had a song that the artist liked. So that's why it was so competitive. Anyway, all the producers and writers jumped on the bandwagon. Eddie Kendricks with The Temptations, let, let him sing lead, you know. So heck, David Ruffin's in that group, man. So is Paul Williams. I know that. So I said, okay, I'm gonna change my strategy. <laughs> so I said, I'm gonna get, first of all, I'm gonna get David Ruffin to sing something sweet. I'm going to get, because he had that demanding voice, you know, like, come here, baby, he had that kind of voice. I said, I'm going to get him saying something sweet to the girls, and they're going to love it. So that's why I wrote My Girl. And so many times people ask me, because My Girl has become, as a songwriter, my international anthem. Mm. Brian, we go to places, I sing that in my, in my live concerts, and we go to places where, in the world where the, the primary language is not even English. 50% of the people in the audience don't even speak English, okay? Mm. And when they hear bum, 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 they jump up, they start jam dancing and singing. They know the words. Yeah. They can sing the word verbatim. It's amazing what that song has become because I never expected that. I was just trying to write a sweet song for David Ruffin to sing to the girls. And so uh, many times people said, well, uh, aren't you sorry you didn't keep my girl for yourself? No, I'm not. Because the Temptations inspired my girl, man. If it were not for them, I probably never would have even written my girl. But if not for the Temptations and David Ruffin, I, I probably would never even written that song. So, no, I'm not sorry to keep it for myself, but it has become my international anthem as a songwriter. One of the biggest songs of all time for anyone. In the same year, 1964, I believe, you, you also wrote My Guy, uh, which is a, just a, a lovely, lovely song in its own right. It's always been one of my favorites. It has such a, a light, innocent, lilting feel to it. And Mary Wells sings this so wonderfully. And, and you wrote so effortlessly from a, a female perspective. What, what do you remember about doing that one? Uh, Mary Wells, uh, when she first came to Motown, uh, she had a song that she had written called Bye Bye Baby. And she had sang it for Barry at a little club. And he wanted to record her on it. And he did. So we recorded that record on her. And it was a hit for her. So he told me, he said, I want you to do an album on Mary. I want you to get some hits for her. So I said, OK. So I started to write for her. And I wanted to change her flavoring. So one night I was watching TV to show you how stuff inspires me. I'm watching Ed Sullivan, man. And who's on there but Harry Belafonte. And Harry Belafonte was one of my favorite artists of all time. You know, I loved him from the time I was a child. I still love Harry. Harry was just, he was Calypso and he was so sexy and so great. And he had that Calypso thing. Dale, Dale. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at that and I said, that's where I'm going to take Mary Wells. I'm going to take her with that flavoring. I'm going to take it with the Calypso flavoring. Wow. So if you'll notice the first few records that I did on Mary Wells had the Calypso flavoring. And the first one that was really, a, a really her first really big hit was called um, The One Who Really Loves You. And uh, it was total Calypso like, like that, you know. So I had her in that vein. And after three or four records like that, I said, well, I'm going to change her, her I'm going to change her up and, and, and take her to another space musically. And that's why I wrote My Guy.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. I have with me today Smokey Robinson, and we're talking about his entire career. He's got a new Audible release out called Smokey Robinson, Grateful and Blessed. We'll be right back with a whole lot more. 1964 was an amazing year. You also had Ooh Baby Baby, which also, I mean, tell me about... Was all that in the same year, man? It was. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it sure <laughs> is. I didn't remember that. As much as the songwriting on that song, I, I, I just think of your vocal. Uh, what do you remember about recording that, if anything? Ooh, Baby, Baby? Yeah. Okay, Brian. Uh, Ooh, Baby, Baby was one of those songs that I call a meant-to-be song. It was an accidental creative hit because of the fact that it was just something spontaneous. The Miracles and I used to sing a medley of love songs by other artists in our show. And we sang it everywhere we went. And one night we were at the Howard Theater in Washington, D.C. And we're singing this song. And there was a group called the Schoolboys at that time. And they had a record called Please Say You Want Me Too, which was the ending song of that medley. And so we we'd gone through Please Say, Please Say You Want Me Too. Mm. We, we, we did all that. And, and the girls, you know, they loved it. And the whole, <laughs> so at the end of it, rather than ending it, I just started to sing, ooh, baby, baby. And the guys, we were so in tune to each other. We'd grown up together. We've been singing together since we were 10 years old. They heard me, and they just started to harmonize with that. The crowd went crazy. So we went back to dressing room, and we said, shit, we're going to keep that in. So every night we started to do that, man. And the crowd went crazy. They never heard that, and they went crazy. So we said, okay, that's it. We're going home and write this. And that's what we did. It was around that time that you started writing some songs for Marvin Gaye. Uh, and I wanted to talk about a little bit about Brian Furman and your relationship to him. He was a complex guy. I think, I think there was a lot of love between you. I, when he did interviews for his autobiography, he talked about he felt like you were outdoing him in some ways during the uh, 60s. Uh, what, was that, what was that relationship like? You mean my personal relationship with Marvin? Yeah. Marvin was my brother, man. Marvin and I were together almost every day. I mean, he lived right on the corner from me. We played golf, basketball, whatever it was. We, whatever, we, we were just together all the time, man. And all the guys at Motown, man. See, Motown was not just a record company, Brian. It was not just a, a gathering place for artists and stuff like that. When you hear about the Motown family, that's real. And for those of us who are still alive, that still exists. We were brothers and sisters together. We did everything together. We did picnics. We went to each other's homes. We had dinner together. We, we socialized together. We did everything together, man. We, we were just a big family. And that included not just the artists, but the people who were in the staff, 
the musicians, everybody. We just had the Motown family, man. And that's what it was. So Marvin and I were very, very, very close, man. But we were competitive, like I explained to you earlier. We had the Motown family, but everybody was competitive. Mm-hmm. Barry had this, this saying that he came up with, and he posted it on the wall at Hitsville. Competition breeds success. Mm. So we all competed against each other like <laughs> mad dogs, okay? But in turn, we helped each other. Like I said, we had the Monday morning meetings where we critiqued each other and critiqued the music to try to make it better. And I'll use this example like this. Norman Whitfield turned out to be my biggest rival for The Temptations, okay? If Norman Whitfield was doing a record on The Temptations because everybody hung out at Motown, when you were in Detroit, that's where you were going to go because everybody was there. It wasn't like, you know, you go there and you, you do your work and you're gone. It was our hanging place, man. You go there and everybody would be there. So I'd be around there doing something. Norman Whitfield come to me and say, hey, Smoke, I'm doing this record on Temptation, man. Come here, I'm going to do some hand claps. I would go <laughs> do it, man, because Norman was my brother, too. And he was working on Temptation. He was my rival. But still, he was my brother, and we were competing, but we were there for each other. In turn, I could be doing a song on Temptation and go and say, hey, Norman, come here, man. I want you to play tambourine. Okay, Smoke. Come. And, and that's how it was there, man. It was beautiful. There has never been anything like that, Brian. And I doubt seriously whether there ever will be again. Absolutely. I, I mean, you've said that Marvin Gaye's uh, What's Going On is your favorite album of all time. And it, actually, it was number one. We recently did a big poll at Rolling Stone, and it actually just was uh, selected as the best album of all time on, on that poll. Fantastic. Did, you know what, Brian? Because it's prophecy, man. You mm. listen to what's going on and what's he talk, what he's talking about in that, in that record, man is happening more now than it was then. You know mm. what I'm saying? It's prophecy. I would go to Marvin's house, he'd be sitting at the piano, he was writing the songs of what's going on. And I'd just be sitting there with him, just waiting for him to finish so we could go do something, something. And he turned to me and said, Smoke, God is writing this album, man. I said, wow. oh yeah? He said, yeah, man. And he said, I'm just sitting here, baby. He said, God is writing this album. So I believe him because it's prophecy. You listen now, to it. In the initial argument over that album, when when Barry at first was, or the song actually, Barry was opposed to it, he didn't see it coming from Marvin, all that. Did you take a side initially in that uh, dispute? No, no, no. You never have to take sides from Marvin. Marvin was on his own side. He was very stubborn. <laughs> he was going to stick to his guns no matter what. So he just, he did, you know, he had done the album and he and Barry had a discrepancy about it. And Barry thought it wasn't for him because Marvin was our sex symbol. See, Marvin was our sex symbol as an artist. He was our sex symbol guy, you know, and that's how we booked him and how we advertised him and stuff. He was our sex symbol guy, you know. So Barry thought it was a bad move for him to sing something political, you know. And Marvin said, no, he says, it's time for this, man. And he stuck to his guns and Barry said, okay, i tell you what, man. He said, we're going to put it out. And if I'm wrong, you come to me and you apologize. I mean, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to apologize. If you're wrong, you come to me. He said, Marvin said, okay. So Barry had to go to him and apologize. <laughs> <laughs> now, I second that emotion, which you wrote a couple years later, 67, I believe. That started because I think it was Al Cleveland said, I second that emotion in conversation. And you laughed and said, it wasn't that funny. And then realized that was the song. Is that, it was as simple as that? Hey, as simple as that, man. See, like I said, I, I don't need to be isolated, man. You might say something, Brian. <laughs> yeah. If, if it's profound enough, I'll give you credit, man. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but, but yeah, we were shopping, uh, Christmas shopping. In, in, in a department store and he was getting something for his wife at one of the counters. And we were talking with the young lady who was selling this stuff and whatever it was, I forgot now. And she said something. And rather than him saying the old saying, I second the motion, he said, oh, oh yeah, I second that emotion, you know? So 
the girl and him and me laughed. I second emotion, you know, man, you mean I second emotion. We, we all laughed about it, you know. And then we were walking out of the store and I said, hey, man, that's a hell of an idea for a song. <laughs> so that's why we wrote it. Now, if you're composing music, you usually do it on, on piano, right? Yes. Yeah. Or just by myself, just without any music. <laughs> Marvel once claimed that you could, he said, oh, Smokey can only play part of the piano. Do you know, do you know what he was talking about? He said, what now? He claimed, I think he was just being a, maybe a moment of judge. He said, oh, Smokey would be, Smokey's the greatest. He'd be even better if he could play the entire piano. He only can play part of it. I don't know what he meant by that. Does it mean Oh, anything? he was just on my ass about something, you know? Yeah, but that doesn't matter because he's right about that. I'm not, I'm not fluent on the piano. I, I mean, I don't play like I wish I could, but I play well enough to write and play well enough to play, you know, if I'm going to play something. Um, but, you know, see, Marvin could really play the piano. He and Stevie, you know, they, they, you know, they can really play. But uh, I don't really play, but I can, I can play, you know. But he was just on my ass, he, you know. He just talked about me, so because we did that to each other. It's called bagging on you, you know. <laughs> You've spoken about the fact, and I've seen videos of you dancing early on, and you're, you're you're a perfectly good dancer. But that wasn't your favorite part, yeah. See the things that you said about the introduction, and then you said I can dance. I'm definitely taking you now. You, you just get the, when the pandemic's over, I start working again. You're going everywhere I go, man. <laughs> Would love nothing more. But you said that the dancing and the choreography was not your favorite part of the whole process. Well, no, it wasn't that it wasn't my favorite part. We, we had a, a choreographer at, at Motown, Charlie Atkins, who uh, was a part of a vaudeville team. Uh, he and the guy who used to run the Apollo Theater, Honey Coles, used to have a vaudeville dance at called Coles and Atkins. And so uh, we went to New York one time uh, when after Shop Around came out and we were in New York and Barry had us to go to Charlie to learn some choreography for the song and blah, blah, blah. So we started to use Charlie. And so eventually Barry hired Charlie to come to Motown and teach all the acts, which he did, you know. So um, he used to always tell me when he'd be showing the miracles of me, something he said, OK, boy, you stand over there. He was, he was like my dad. He said, okay, you, you just stand over there. Don't, don't, you, you just sing, because I'm not going to try to teach you these steps, because I'm not going to have my steps ruined by you. So, so, so he would teach you. Because I'm not really a dancer, but you know, I accepted that. So that's what it was. <laughs> now, you've known so many people who were just part of your everyday life, and now to us, they're, they're just the legends and giants of the, of the 20th century. You know, you, you were close with Aretha. I could go on and on. In your memory, do they, they feel like giants or do they just feel like people you know or both, if you know what I mean? It's, a, it's just such a funny thing. When you look, the way you look at musical history of the 20th century is just very different from someone who's just a listener. I mean, these were your friends. Well, Brian, it is a bit of both for me, man. It's, it's both because, you know, uh, they were my brothers and sisters and we were very close. I've known Aretha Franklin since... She was five years old, man. You know, we grew up together. Diana Ross, and she was eight. I mean, we just grew up together there. You know, like I said, the Temptation, the Four Tops. You know, we, we, did, we grew up together, man. So I knew those people, and uh, they were always, and those of them who are still alive, like I said, are still my brothers and sisters, man. I mean, we just, I just was with Otis the other day, man. And, we, you know, we, we're still brothers and sisters, and that's how we operate. And, uh, but still, I recognize the success and, and the icon factor involved with those people because they become, became some of the biggest people ever in the music world. So yeah, I recognize that fact and I'm very proud of that. I know it's hard to ask with a close friend, but is there, is there a favorite Aretha memory that you would share? Um, no, 
I had so many memories with her, man. Aretha was my baby, and I miss her like crazy. She was my baby. We talked all the time, and, and, you know, she just was my baby, man. And I guess the most profound memory that I have of her would be with the first day I met her. They, they had just moved to Detroit from Buffalo, New York, and her brother, Cecil, who was one of my closest friends throughout life, he came around, and the boys were outside playing. So he just came around as a new boy, one of my friends, Richard. Rich brought him around and they, we started playing together and everything like that. So we just wanted to go around and see his new house where he had moved to. And so we went over there and I, I grew up in the ghetto, man, in the hood, you know. And so two blocks in the center of the ghetto, Brian, hmm. were plunged right in the center of the ghetto, Boston Boulevard and Arden Park. They had islands in between. The grass was manicured. There were mansions on those streets and everything right in the center of the ghetto. Because I lived on Belmont and Boston Boulevard was the next street over. My street was in the hood. Boston Boulevard was mansions, you know. So Cecil, his father was one of the biggest preachers in the country. So we go around to see his house and he lived on Boston Boulevard and they lived in a mansion. So we had never been in a mansion. I hadn't. You know, so mm. We're marveling at it. And I hear music coming from a little room and I hear this little voice singing, you know. So we go to see what's going on. There's this little girl sitting at the piano, playing the piano damn near like she played it when she was grown and singing damn near like that, singing Amazing Grace. It was Aretha, you know what I mean? Five years old. So that's, that was my memory of first seeing her and how I first saw her. And um, she was profound back then, man. <laughs> wow. I want to talk a little bit about the development of your, your vocal style. You, you named a lot of the, the great singers of your time as influences, but and you also you, you named uh, Nolan Strong and the and the Diablos as an influence. They were a great doo-wop group. I don't know how many people still know them, but when I hear that stuff, it and it was I believe they're from Detroit as well. So so I, I almost hear a little bit of, of Motown before Motown when I when I listen to them. Well, you know they were from Detroit, man, and they were the, they were the craze in Detroit, man. When I was in junior high school, man, the Motown, I mean uh, the Diablos, uh, Nolan Strong, the Diablos came out with a record called "Adios, My Desert Love." Mm-hmm. It just killed everybody in, in my age group. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, yeah, they were doo-wop, and they were back in the day, man. And I, and growing up as a kid, I used to go see them and watch them. There was a place in Detroit called the Madison Ballroom, and we'd go there. They'd be performing there and stuff. And I'd be wish- looking at them, wishing that one day I could be on stage doing that same thing, you know. But, yeah, Nolan Strong and the Diablos were powerful in Michigan. I don't know what they did all over the country, but, you know. As a singer, you know, you never tried to be tough. You always were comfortable being gentle and, and almost feminine, you know, with, with the falsetto. And that takes more confidence in some way than being a big soul shouter. So where did that sort of confidence to be gentle come from? You, you know, Brian, I don't know, man. I, I've been a music lover ever since I could hear, man. From the time I was a baby and I could hear, I loved music. And fortunately for me, I grew up in a home where there was always music, man. I mean, we had everything going on. I had two older sisters and they were playing. Uh, the, my, my youngest sister was 14 when I was born and my oldest sister was 17 when I was born. And they'd be playing Count Basie and Duke Ellington and Sarah Vaughn and Frank Sinatra and Patty Page and people like that and Dizzy Gillespie and all that, you know. And then my mom would be playing the Five Blind Boys and the Volunteers and the, the Claire Ward singers and B.B. King and Muddy Waters and Lil Walter. There were a whole lot of littles back then. Mm. Lil Walter, Lil Esther, you know, she'd be playing all that stuff like that. And then my dad, he thought he was Mario Alonzo. So we heard, 
that kind of stuff, you know, and, 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 and Bach and Beethoven and all. I had a great dose of music, man. So I just grew up loving that. Now, the first voice that I ever remember hearing in my life was Servan. Hmm. Servan, as far as I'm concerned, and Ella Fitzgerald were instruments. They were just vocal instruments, and they could do everything vocally that you probably could do vocally. You know what I'm saying? And they were my really influential on me in those days when I was five and six and seven and like that, you know. So I think that Saravon was the first influence that I had, a big influence that I had as far as a singer. You know what I'm saying? And she happened to be a female. Mm. You know? And uh, so so I think she was the biggest influence that I had, uh, you know, as an adolescent and that, you know. So, uh, and then when I started to grow up, <clears throat> I got to be about 11 and 12 or something, I started to buy my own records. Hey man, I bought Jackie Wilson and Sam Cooke and, and Clive McFadder and Frankie Lyman and all the high singing guys, you know, and um, and Nolan Strong and, you know, those were the, and Ray Charles and, you know, those were the guys that I idolized as singers, you know, and they all sang high. So that that was that was it. <laughs> Do you remember when you first let that falsetto loose? No, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, a lot a lot of uh, a lot of my singing, Brian, is not. Falsetto. I mean, people think because I have a high voice, you know. Mm. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of stuff that's falsetto, but most of it is, is, is my natural voice. When I was in choir in high school, man, in the 12th grade, I sang second soprano. You know what I'm saying? Right. So I've always had a high voice like that. And um, and those were the people that I patterned myself after. You know, something like, something like "Ooh, baby, baby." It, it, that's your falsetto, right, on the chorus? Yeah, or, yeah. Or, Ooh, yeah. baby. Yeah, that's yeah. That, of course. Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> otherwise, that would be superhuman. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But but not the whole song. You know. Right. That's what I'm yeah. Right. I got you. I got you. And I, I mean, guess I guess the falsetto probably became so so prevalent for people. For me, people just think that that's that's what it is for me, but it's not. No. No. I mean, no. Yeah. Uh, and then, as as you said, you could rhyme. That's just a natural thing. You can make make up rhymes. But I mean, when you look at you know. Uh, my smile is my makeup that I wear since my breakup with you. I mean, that's so many incredible lines. Are there are there lyric, writers of lyrics who have inspired you over the years, or who you, you admire, or who write the kind of lyrics that? Yeah, you can start with the Gershwins and Cohen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people like they can start with them because you know one of my proudest things that I have as a songwriter, man, is that I was inducted into the Gershwin Hall of Fame. Now, for them to even mention my name in the same sentence with the Gershwins, man, that's incredible to me, man. That's something that I never even dared to even think about. You know what I'm saying? But they were like, people like that were my first songwriting influences, you know. But then, like I said, when I grew up and I started, and then I met Barry Gordy and, you know, just, just people. And there are so many wonderful, wonderful songwriters that I just admire so much, man. And um, so I, I think that that's been a real influence on me writing, you know. You've, uh, you know, one of my favorite rhymes is, uh, I, is not really a rhyme at oh, all. I, you I, know I, what I want to tell you? You know what I want to tell you about? Yeah. The question about, here's my thoughts, Brian. There are no new words. Mm. There are no new notes. There are really probably no new phrases. You understand? So within the, within the ramification of what we have to work with as writers, with, the, with words and so on and so forth, that's what we have to use. So now my thoughts as a songwriter has always been this. 
How can I say I love you like it's never been said? Is there a way that I can say I love you like it's never been said and people are going to know that I mean I love you? So I try that. I try that when I'm writing. I want to say something that's the same thing but different. Tell me about coming up with the, when you named your album Quiet Storm, you named an entire genre. And it's just based on the idea, it was just based on something as simple as I want to take, you're going back solo, you want to take the industry by storm, and you realize, but you're, you're a quiet singer, and it was just as simple as that? As simple as that. Just as simple as that, man. And I never dared to dream, it's like my girl. I never dared to dream that Quiet Storm would become a radio format. That's just incredible to me. It was just going to be my debut. It was just going to be my debut back in the show business, and that's how I pictured it. I'm going to be a quiet storm. Because I sing quiet, but I'm going to take it by storm when I go back. I'm going to do everything I can to be the best that I can be at it, you know. So that was my thought. And then here it becomes a radio format and all that. A guy named Melvin Lindsay in Washington, D.C. started his quiet storm program at night. And he opened it up with that record and stuff. And it just took off all over the country. So I'm very happy and very proud of that. And you were talking about taking five years to write Cruisin', which came out in 1979 and was a massive hit. One of the things that, in, in the process of writing that, I guess, was you wrote other songs, you've said, to that music. Do you remember what the ideas were, <laughs> the other ideas for Cruisin'? Not at all, man. I don't remember <laughs> them at all, because once, once I started working on Cruisin', those just went by the wayside. So, no, I don't remember what they were at all, period. I just know that my guitarist, Mark Tarplin, was one of the most musical men I've ever known in my life. And he had put that music on tape for me, which haunted me. I used to listen to it every night. It put me to sleep. It's so sensual and so sexy. And it, it haunted me. So, uh, yeah, it took five years to write it, man, because nothing was, was suitable to his music before I came up with, with Cruising. But... Part of it was having the musical intelligence to recognize that there was something great lurking there and to wait that five years, because most people would have given up. Most people would have given up after uh, one month. Well, you know what, Brian? If most people had that tape of him just playing the guitar, <laughs> of him just playing the guitar himself, he had his own way of playing. He fluttered the guitar. You know what I mean? If they had that music that they could listen to every night, they would understand that. Because it had to be something to match his music, man. Because if it wasn't, I, like I said, I wrote a couple of songs, and they didn't match his music. So it didn't make sense. I was going to ask you about a, a 1983 song that uh, is underrated, really great song with a fun video called Ebony Eyes uh, that you did with Rick James. I don't know if you have any memories of that one and what it was like to, to work with him, because he obviously was, he was Rick James. So everyone has a Rick James story. That's one of my fondest memories, man. That's one of my fondest musical memories, man. Doing that song and doing that video with Rick. Now, Rick was my brother. Like I said, we were all brothers at Motown, man. <laughs> we used to hang together. Rick was something to hang with because Rick could hang. You know what I mean? Rick could party. <laughs> Rick could hang. So uh, he called me. I had retired at the time. And he called me and he said, uh, hey, man, he said, I wrote this song and I want you to come to the studio and sing with me. I said, Rick, you know I'm retired, man. I'm like, he said, I don't care about retirement. He said, I want you to come and sing this song with me. <laughs> I said, okay. So I went over there and I sang it with him. And we did it and we did the record and everything. And so he called me about a week later and said, hey, man, I'm going to do a video and I want you to be in the video. I said, Rick, I mean, he said, I don't care about that, man. Get your ass over here. We're going to do a video. So. We shot the video for three days, man, around Los Angeles. It was like doing a mini movie. 
But it was one of my fondest memories of the music world, man, doing that song and doing that video with Rick because we had a ball and it was great. We had a wonderful time and it turned out great. And it's a great song. And many times in my in my live concerts, I get requests for that song, man. I, I don't play it with my band or anything, but I will sing part of it acapella. For- yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a great song and a, and a nice unexpected uh, collaboration. Now, I don't know how often you have a chance to think about this, but uh, you know, you, you still you have a career very much going. You just released a song a couple weeks ago. Uh, but how often do you, do you think about legacy and how you'd like to be remembered someday? I, I don't know if that's, that's something that, that, that crosses your mind. Um, you know what? I would like to be remembered, uh, of course, as someone who did a contribution to the music world. Of course, I'd like to be remembered as that. But I, I want to be remembered as a, as, as a good person as someone who cared about life and about people and about the things that go on in the world, because I do. And, um, you know, we're living in a world where there's a lot of disturbing things going on. And I'm just hoping that we can make it better. You know? Yeah. How, how has this year been for you? Oh, it's been a rough year, man. This has been one of the roughest years I can remember, Brian. Hmm. You know, I haven't done a concert since February. Yeah. Okay. So this has been a very rough year. I mean, my business was almost totally cut off. Yeah. It just totally just stopped in its tracks. You know what I mean? So it's been a, it's been a rough year for, for people in the music business uh, you know, in general. Not just me, you know, but it's been a rough year. And then, you know, I just, I just hope that it gets better. You know, for a while, all the studios were closed down. Everything was closed down. So it's been a rough year. And it's been a rough year for, for the United States. And I'm glad that finally we can kind of see the light. Well said. Smokey Robinson, what a, what a pleasure. What an honor. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this. It's Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it, man. God bless. Well, and that was our show for today. Thanks so much to Smokey Robinson for joining me. Before we go, I wanted to put in a plug for another Rolling Stone podcast. It's called Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums, and it digs into the making of some of the albums on our very well-trafficked list. And it's hosted by Britney Spanos, and it's only on Amazon Music. I've been popping up here and there as well, so please check it out. But Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week here on SiriusXM's Volume. And as always, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can, or just hit five stars. Either way, it's always appreciated. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.